0: Welcome to this Uvula Audio Bookcast presentation of Thomas Merton's autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain. The story will be bookcast on the adult podcast stream. This is the first time that we have presented any kind of autobiography, but Merton's is a special case and a kind of personal project in our opinion, since it seems likely that our usual audience of sci-fi and fantasy fans will not quite be drawn to Merton's amazing story. In 1941... The brilliant, good-looking, and worldly young Thomas Merton decided to give up a promising literary career in New York to enter a monastery in Kentucky, from where he proceeded to become one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. Thomas Merton's first book, The Seven-Story Mountain, published in 1949 and celebrating its 60th anniversary this year, describes his early doubts, his conversion to a Catholic faith of extreme certainty— and his decision to take life vows as a Trappist monk. Merton's autobiographical reflections are mostly wise, humble, and concrete. However, the best reason to read or listen to The Seven-Story Mountain may be the one that Merton provided in his introduction to its Japanese translation. Quote, I seek to speak to you, in some way, as your own self. Who can I tell what this may mean? I do not know, but if you listen things will be said that are perhaps not written in this book, and this will not be due to me, but to the one who lives and speaks in both. As one reader of Merton said, you can't read this book without being charmed and blessed by the proximity to this rare bit of humanity and devotion in our secular and very material age. And now, The Seven-Story Mountain. Chapter One, Part One Prisoner's Base. On the last day of January 1915, under the sign of the water bearer, in a year of great war, and down in the shadow of some French mountains on the borders of Spain, I came into the world. Free by nature in the image of God, I was nevertheless the prisoner of my own violence and my own selfishness in the image of the world into which I was born. That world was the picture of hell, full of men like myself, loving God and yet hating him, born to love him, living instead in fear at hopeless, self-contradictory hungers. Not many hundreds of miles away from the house where I was born, they were picking up the men who rotted in the rainy ditches among the dead horses and the ruined 75s in a forest of trees without branches along the River Marne. My father and mother were captives in that world, knowing they did not belong to it or in it, and yet unable to get away from it. They were in the world and not of it. Not because they were saints, but in a different way, because they were artists. The integrity of an artist lifts a man above the level of the world without delivering him from it. My father painted like Cezanne, and understood the southern French landscape the way Cézanne did. His vision of the world was sane, full of balance, full of veneration for structure, for the relations of masses, and for all the circumstances that impress an individual identity on each created thing. His vision was religious and clean, and therefore his paintings were without decoration or superfluous comment says a religious man respects the power of God's creation to bear witness for itself. My father was a very good artist. Neither of my parents suffered from the little spooky prejudices that devour the people who know nothing but automobiles and movies and what's in the icebox and what's in the paper and which neighbors are getting a divorce. I inherited from my father his way of looking at things and some of his integrity, and from my mother some of her dissatisfaction with the mess the world is in, and some of her versatility. From both, I got capacities for work and vision and enjoyment and expression that ought to have made me some kind of king if the standards the world lives by were the real ones. Not that we ever had any money, but any fool knows that you don't need money to get enjoyment out of life. If what most people take for granted was really true, If all you needed to be happy was to grab everything and see everything and investigate every experience and then talk about it, I should have been a very happy person, a spiritual millionaire from the cradle even until now. If happiness were merely a matter of natural gifts, I would never have entered a Trappist monastery when I came to the age of a man. Part 2 My father and mother came from the ends of the earth, to parades, and then they came to stay. They stayed barely long enough for me to be born and get on my small feet, and then they left again, and they continued, and I began a somewhat long journey for all three of us, one way and another. It is now ended. And though my father came from the other side of the earth, beyond many oceans, all the pictures of Christ Church, New Zealand, where he was born, look like the suburbs of London, but perhaps a little cleaner. There is more sunlight in New Zealand, and I think the people are healthier. My father's name was Owen Merton, Owen because his mother's family had lived for a generation or two in Wales, though I believe they were originally lowland Scotch. And my father's father was a music master and a pious man who taught at Christ College, Christ Church, on the South Island. My father had a lot of energy and independence, He told me how it was in the hill country and in the mountains of the South Island, out on the sheep farms and in the forests where he had been. And once, when one of the Antarctic expeditions came that way, my father nearly joined it to go to the South Pole. He would have been frozen to death along with all the others, for that was one from which no one returned. When he wanted to study art, there were many difficulties in his way, and it was not easy for him to convince his people that that was really his vocation, but eventually he went to London, and then to Paris, and in Paris he met my mother and married her, and never went back to New Zealand. My mother was an American. I have seen a picture of her as a rather slight, thin, sober little person, with a serious and somewhat anxious and very sensitive face. And this corresponds with my memory of her, worried, precise, quick, critical of me, her son. Yet in the family, she has always spoken of as gay and very light-hearted. My grandmother kept great locks of mother's red hair after she died, and mother's happy laughter as a boarding school girl was what never ceased to echo in my grandmother's memory. It seems to me now that mother must have been a person full of insatiable dreams and of great ambition after perfection. Perfection in art, in interior decoration, in dancing, housekeeping, and in raising children. Maybe that is why I remember her mostly as worried, since the imperfection of myself, her first son, had been a great deception. If this book does not prove anything else, it will certainly show that I was nobody's dream child. I have seen a diary Mother was keeping in the time of my infancy and first childhood, and it reflects some astonishment at the stubborn and seemingly spontaneous development of completely unpredictable features in my character, things she had never bargained for. For example, a deep and serious urge to adore the gaslight in the kitchen With no little ritualistic veneration When I was about four Churches and formal religion Were things to which mother attached Not too little importance In the training of a modern child And my guess is that she thought If I were left to myself I would grow up into a nice quiet deist of some sort And never be perverted by superstition My baptism at Prades Was almost certainly father's idea Because he had grown up with a deep And well-developed faith according to the doctrines of the Church of England. But I don't think there was much power in the waters of baptism I got in parades to untwist the warping of my essential freedom or to loose me from the devils that hung like vampires on my soul. My father came to the Pyrenees because of a dream of his own, more single, more concrete, more practical than mother's numerous and haunting ideals of perfection. Father wanted to get some place where he could settle in France raise a family, and paint, and live on practically nothing, because we had practically nothing to live on. Father and mother had many friends at parades, and when they had moved there and had furniture in their flat, the canvases piled up in the corner, and the whole place smelling of fresh oil paints, and watercolors, and cheap pipe tobacco, and cooking as more friends came down from Paris. And mother would paint in the hills under a large canvas parasol, and father would paint in the sun, and and the friends would drink red wine and gaze out over the valley at Connigo and at the monastery on the slopes of the mountain. There were many ruined monasteries in those mountains. My mind goes back with great reverence to the thought of those clean, ancient stone cloisters, those low and mighty rounded arches hewn and set in place by monks who have perhaps prayed me where I now am. St. Martin and St. Michael the Archangel, the great patron of monks, had churches in those mountains, Saint-Martin-du-Canago, Saint-Michel-du-Quaxa. Is it any wonder I should have a friendly feeling about those places? One of them, stone by stone, followed me across the Atlantic a score of years later and got set up within convenient reach of me when I most needed to see what a cloister looked like and what kind of a place a man might live in to live according to his rational nature and not like a stray dog. saint michel de quaxa was all fixed up in a special and considerably tidy little museum in an uptown park in New York overlooking the Hudson River in such a way that you don't recall what kind of a city you're in. It's called the Cloisters. Synthetic as it is, still preserves enough of its own reality to be a reproach to everything else around it, except the trees and the palisades. But when the friends of my mother and father came to parades, They brought the newspapers, rolled up in their coat pockets, and they had many postcards carrying patriotic cartoons representing the Allies overcoming the Germans. My grandparents, that is my mother's father and mother in America, were worried about her being in a land at war, and it was evident that we could not stay much longer at parades. I was barely a year old. I remember nothing about the journey as we went to Bordeaux to take the boat that had a gun mounted on the foredeck. I remember nothing about the crossing of the sea, nothing of the anxiety about the U-boats or the arrival in New York and in the land where there was no war. But I can easily reconstruct the first encounter between my American grandparents and their new son-in-law and their grandson. For Pop, as my American grandfather was called in the family, was a buoyant and excitable man who, on docks, boats, trains and stations and elevators... On buses and hotels and restaurants, you used to get keyed up and start ordering everybody around and making new arrangements and changing them on the spur of the moment. My grandmother, who we called Monomamon, was just the opposite, and her natural deliberateness and hesitancy and hatred of activity always seemed to increase in proportion to Pop's excesses in the opposite direction. The more active Pop became, and more he shouted and gave directions, the more hesitant and doubtful and finally inert was my grandmother. But perhaps this obscure and innocent and wholly subconscious conflict had not yet developed in 1916 to the full pitch of complications which it was to attain some 15 years later. I have no doubt that there was a certain amount of conflict between the two generations when father and mother determined that they were going to find their own kind of house and live in it. It was a small house, very old and rickety, standing under two or three high pine trees in Flushing, Long Island, which was then a country town. We were out in the fields in the direction of Kiljordan Jordan and Jamaica and the old truant school. The house had four rooms, two downstairs and two upstairs, and two of the rooms were barely larger than closets. It must have been very cheap. Our landlord, Mr. Dugan, ran a nearby saloon. He got in trouble with Father for helping himself to the rhubarb which we were growing in the garden. I remember the gray summer dusk in which this happened. We were at the supper table when the bended Mr. Dugan was observed, like some whale in a sea of green rhubarb plucking up the red stalks. Father rose to his feet and hastened out into the garden. I could hear indignant words. We sat at the supper table, silent, not eating. When Father returned, I began to question him and to endeavor to work out the morality of the situation. And I still remember it as having struck me as a difficult case, with much to be said on both sides. In fact, I had assumed that if the landlord felt like it, he could simply come in and harvest all our vegetables, and there was nothing we could do about it. I mention this with the full consciousness that someone will use it against me, and say that the real reason I became a monk in later years was that I had the mentality of a medieval serf when I was barely out of the cradle. Father did as much painting as he could. He filled several sketchbooks and finished some watercolors along the waterfront in New York and eventually even had an exhibition in a place in Flushing, which was maintained by some artists there. Two doors away from us, up the road, in a white house with pointed gables, surrounded by a wide sweep of sloping lawn and with a stable that had been turned into a studio, lived Bryson Burroughs, who painted pale classical pictures, something like Puyves de Chavannes and who, with some of the gentleness you could see in his work, was very kind to us. Father could not support us by painting. During the war years, we lived out his work as a landscape gardener, which was mostly plain manual labor, for he not only laid out the gardens of some rich people in the neighborhood, but did most of the work planting and caring for them. And that was how we lived. Father did not get his money under false pretenses. He was a very good gardener, understood flowers, and knew how to make things grow. What is more, he liked this kind of work almost as much as he did painting. Then, in November 1918, about a week before the armistice of that particular world war, my younger brother was born. He was a child with a much serener nature than mine, with not so many obscure drives and impulses. I remember that everyone was impressed by his constant and unruffled happiness. In the long evenings when he was put to bed before the sun went down, instead of fighting and protesting as I did when I had to go to bed, he would lie upstairs in his crib, and we would hear him singing a little tune. Every evening it was the same tune, very simple, very primitive, a nice little tune, very suitable for the time of day and for the season. Downstairs we would all fall more or less silent, lulled by the singing of the child in the crib, and we would see the sun rays slanting across the fields and through the windows as the day ended. I had an imaginary friend called Jack, who had an imaginary dog called Doolittle. The chief reason why I had an imaginary friend was that there were no other children to play with, and my little brother, John Paul, was still a baby. When I tried to seek diversion watching the gentleman who played pool at Mr. Dugan's saloon, I got into a lot of trouble. On the other hand, I could go and play at Burroughs Place, in their garden, and in the room full of old lumber over the studio. Betty Burroughs knew how to join in games in a way that did not imply patronage, though she was practically grown up. But for friends of my own age, I had to fall back on my own imagination, and it was perhaps not a good thing. Mother did not mind the company I kept in my imagination, at least to begin with, but once I went shopping with her and refused to cross Main Street Flushing for fear that the imaginary dog Doolittle might get run over by real cars... This I later learned from her record of the affair in her diary. By 1920, I could read and write and draw. I drew a picture of the house and everybody sitting under the pine trees, on a blanket, on the grass, and sent it to Pop in the mail. He lived in Douglaston, which was about five miles away, but most of the time I drew pictures of boats, ocean liners with many funnels and hundreds of portholes and waves all around as jagged as a saw, and the air full of V's for seagulls. Things were stimulated by the momentous arrival of my New Zealand grandmother, who had come from the Antipodes to visit her scattered children in England and America as soon as the war had ended. I think she brought one of my aunts along with her, but I was most of all impressed by Granny. She must have talked to me a great deal and asked me many questions and told me a great number of things, though there are few precise details I remember about the visit. The general impression she left was one of veneration and awe, and love. She was very good and kind, and there was nothing effusive and overwhelming about her affection. I have no precise memory of what she looked like, except that she wore dark clothes, gray and dark brown, had glasses and gray hair, and spoke quietly and earnestly. She'd been a teacher, like her husband, my New Zealand grandfather. The clearest thing I remember about her was the way she put salt on her oatmeal at breakfast. Of this I am certain, and made a very profound impression on me. Of the other one thing, I am less certain, but it was in itself much more important. She taught me the Lord's Prayer. Perhaps I had been taught to say the Our Father before by my earthly father. I never used to say it. But evidently, Granny asked me one night if I had said my prayers, and it turned out that I did not know the Our Father, so she taught it to me. After that, I did not forget it, even though I went for years without saying it at all. It seems strange that father and mother, who were concerned almost to the point of scrupulosity about keeping the minds of their sons uncontaminated by error and mediocrity and ugliness and sham, had not bothered to give us any formal religious training. The only explanation I have is the guess that mother must have had strong views on the subject, Possibly she considered any organized religion below the standard of intellectual perfection she demanded of any child of hers. We never went to church in Flushing. In fact, I remember having an intense desire to go to church one day, but we did not go. It was a Sunday. Perhaps it was an Easter Sunday, probably in 1920. From across the fields and beyond the red farmhouse of our neighbor, I could see the spire of St. George's Church above the trees, The sound of the church bells came to us across the bright fields. I was playing in front of the house and stopped to listen. Suddenly, all the birds began to sing in the trees above my head, and the sound of the birds singing and church bells ringing lifted my heart with joy, and I cried out to my father, Father, all the birds are in their church. And then I had said, Why don't we go to church? My father looked up and said, We will. Now, I said, No, it's too late, but we'll go some other Sunday. And yet Mother did go somewhere, sometimes, on Sunday mornings, to worship God. I doubt that Father went with her. He probably stayed at home to take care of me and John Paul, for we never went. But anyway, Mother went to the Quakers and sat with them in their ancient meeting house. This was the only kind of religion for which she had any use. I suppose it was taken for granted that... When we grew up, we might be allowed to tend in that direction, too. Probably no influence would have been brought to bear on us to do so. We would have been left to work it out more or less for ourselves. Meanwhile, at home, my education was progressing along the lines laid down by some progressive method that Mother had read about in one of those magazines. She answered an advertisement that carried an oval portrait of some bearded scholar with a pin's nez, and received from Baltimore a set of books and some charts and even a small desk and blackboard. The idea was that the smart modern child was to be turned loose amid this apparatus and allowed to develop spontaneously into a midget university before reaching the age of ten. The ghost of John Stuart Mill must have glided up and down the room with a sigh of gratification as I opened the desk and began. I forget what came of it all except that one night I was sent to bed early for stubbornly spelling "which" without the first H. W-I-C-H. I remember brooding about this injustice. What do they think I am, anyway? After all, I was only five years old. Still, I retain no grudge against the fancy method or the desk that went with it. Maybe that was where my geography book came from, the favorite book of my childhood. I was so fond of playing prisoner's bass all over those maps, I wanted to become a sailor. I was only too eager for the kind of footloose and unstable life I was soon to get into. My second best book confirmed me in this desire. This was the collection of stories called The Greek Heroes. It was more than I could do to read the Victorian version of these Greek myths for myself, but father read them aloud, and I learned of Theseus and the Minotaur, of the Medusa, of Perseus and Andromeda, Jason sailed to a far land after the Golden Fleece. Theseus returned victorious but forgot to change the black sails, and the king of Athens threw himself down from the rock, believing that his son was dead. In those days I learned the name Hesperides, and it was from these things that I unconsciously built up the vague fragments of a religion and a philosophy, which remained hidden and implicit in my acts, and which, in due time, were to assert themselves in a deep and all-embracing attachment to my own judgment and my own will, and a constant turning away from subjugation toward the freedom of my own ever-changing horizons. In a sense, this was intended as the fruit of my early training. Mother wanted me to be independent, and not to run with the herd. I was to be original, individual. I was to have a definite character and ideals of my own, I was not to be an article thrown together on the common bourgeois pattern on everybody else's assembly line. If we had continued as we had begun, and if John Paul and I had grown up in that house, probably this Victorian-Greek complex would have built itself up gradually, and we would have turned into good-mannered and earnest skeptics, polite, intelligent, and perhaps even in some sense useful. We might have become successful authors or editors of magazines, professors at small and progressive colleges. The way would have been all smooth, and perhaps I would never have ended up as a monk. But it is not yet the time to talk about that happy consummation, the thing for which I most thank and praise God, and which is, of all things, the ultimate paradoxical fulfillment of my mother's ideas for me, the last thing she would ever have dreamed of the boomerang of all her solicitude for individual development. But oh, how many possibilities there were ahead of me and my brother in that day. A brand new conscience was just coming into existence as an actual operating function of my soul. My choices were just about to become responsible. My mind was clean and unformed enough to receive any set of standards and work with the most perfect of them and work with grace itself and God's own values, if I had ever had the chance. Here was a will, neutral, undirected, a force waiting to be applied, ready to generate tremendous, imminent powers of light or darkness, peace or conflict, order or confusion, love or sin. The bias which my will was to acquire from circumstances of all its acts would eventually be the direction of my whole being toward happiness or misery, life or death, heaven or hell. More than that, since no man ever can or could live by himself or for himself alone, the destinies of thousands of other people were bound to be affected, some remotely, but some more very directly and near at hand by my own choices And decisions And desires As my own life would also be formed and modified according to them I was entering into a moral universe In which I could be related to every other rational being And in which whole masses of us As thick as swarming bees Would drag one another Along towards some common end of good Or evil Peace or war I think it must have been after Mother went to the hospital that one Sunday I went to the Quaker meeting house with Father He had explained to me that the people came and sat there, silent, doing nothing, saying nothing, until the Holy Spirit moved someone to speak. He also told me that a famous old gentleman who was one of the founders of the Boy Scouts of America would be there. That was Dan Beard. Consequently, I sat among the Quakers with three more or less equal preoccupations running through my mind. Where was Dan Beard? Would he not be called Beard, but have one on his chin? And what was the Holy Spirit going to move all these people to do or say? I forget how the third question was answered, but after the man sitting in the high wooden rostrum presiding over the Quakers gave the signal that the meeting was ended, I saw Dan Beard among the people under the low sunny porch outside the meeting house door. He had a beard. It was almost certainly in the last year or so of Mother's life, 1921, that Father got a job as an organist, at the Episcopalian Church in Douglaston. It was not a job that made him very happy or enthusiastic. He did not get along very well with the minister. But I began to go to the church on Sundays, which makes me think that Mother was in the hospital, because I must have been living with Pop and Bonamaman in Douglaston. The old Zion Church was a white wooden building with a squat, square little belfry, standing on a hill surrounded by high trees and a large graveyard and in a crypt underneath it were buried the original Douglas family, who had settled there on the shores of the Sound some hundred years before. It was pleasant enough on Sundays. I remember the procession that came out of the sacristy, a choir of men and women dressed in black and white surplices and led by a cross. There were stained-glass windows up behind the altar. One had an anchor on it for its design, which interested me because I wanted to go to sea and travel all over the world. Strange interpretations of a religious symbol ordinarily taken to signify stability and hope. The theological virtue of hope dependence on God. To me, it suggested the opposite. Travel, adventure, the wide sea, and unlimited possibilities of human heroism, with myself as the hero. Then there was a lectern, shaped like an eagle with outspread wings, on which rested a huge Bible. Nearby was an American flag. And above that was one of those little boards they have in Protestant churches on which the numbers of the hymns to be sung are indicated by black and white cards. I was impressed by the lighting of the candles on the altar, by the taking up of the collection, and by the singing of hymns. While Father, hidden behind the choir somewhere, played the organ. One came out of the church with a kind of comfortable and satisfied feeling that something had been done that needed to be done, and that was all I knew about it. And now as I consider it, after many years, I see it was very good I should have got at least that much of religion in my childhood. It is a law of man's nature, written into his very essence, and just as much a part of him as the desire to build houses and cultivate land and marry and have children and read books and sing songs, that he should want to stand together with other men in order to acknowledge their common dependence on God, their Father and Creator. In fact, this desire is much more fundamental than any purely physical necessity. At the same time, my father played the piano every evening in a small movie theater which had been opened to the next town, Bayside. We certainly needed the money. Part 3 And probably the chief reason why we needed the money was that my mother had cancer of the stomach. That was another thing that was never explained to me. Everything about sickness and death was more or less kept hidden from me because consideration of these things might make a child morbid. And since I was destined to grow up with a nice, clear, optimistic, and well-balanced outlook on life, I was never even taken to the hospital to see Mother after she went there. This was entirely her own idea. How long she'd been ill and suffering, still keeping house for us, not without poverty and hardship, without our knowing anything of what it was. I cannot say, but her sickness probably accounts for my memory of her as thin and pale, and rather severe. With a selfishness unusual even in a child, I was glad to move from Flushing to my grandparents' house in Douglaston. There I was allowed to do more or less as I pleased. There was plenty of food, and we had two dogs and several cats to play with. I did not miss Mother very much, and did not weep when I was not allowed to go and see her. I was content to run in the woods with the dogs or climb trees or pester the children or play around in the clean little studio where Bonamaman sometimes painted China and fired it in a small kiln. Then one day Father gave me a note to read. I was very surprised. It was for me personally, and it was in my mother's handwriting. I don't think she'd ever written to me before. There had never been any occasion for it. Then I understood what was happening although, as I remember, the language of the letter was very confusing to me. Nonetheless, one thing was quite evident. My mother was informing me by mail that she was about to die and would never see me again. I took the note out under the maple tree in the backyard and worked over it until I had made it all out and had gathered what it really meant, and a tremendous weight of sadness and depression settled on me. It was not the grief of a child... "'with pangs of sorrow and many tears. "'It had something of the heavy perplexity "'and gloom of adult grief "'and was, therefore, all the more of a burden "'because it was, to that extent, unnatural. "'I suppose one reason for this "'was that I had more or less had to arrive "'at the truth by induction. "'Prayer? No. "'Prayer did not even occur to me. "'How fantastic that would seem to a Catholic!' That a six year old child should find out that his mother was dying and not even know enough to pray for her. It was not until I became a Catholic 20 years later that it finally occurred to me to pray for my mother. My grandparents did not have a car, but they hired one to go to the hospital when the end finally came. I went with them in the car, but was not allowed to enter the hospital. Perhaps it was just as well. What would it have been the good of my being plunged into a lot of naked suffering and emotional crisis without any prayer, any sacrament to stabilize and order it and make some kind of meaning out of it? In that sense, Mother was right. Death under those circumstances was nothing but ugliness, and it could not possibly have any ultimate meaning. Why burden a child's mind with the sight of it? I sat outside the car with the hired driver. Again... I knew nothing definite about what was going on, but I think there was also by this time no little subconscious rejection of everything that might have given me any certainty that Mother was really dying, for if I had wanted to find out, I would not have had much trouble. The car was parked in a yard entirely enclosed by black brick buildings, thick with soot. On one side was a long, low shed, and rain dripped down from the eaves as we sat in silence and listened to the drops falling on the roof of the car. The sky was heavy with mist and smoke, and the sweet, sick smell of hospital and gas house mingled with the stuffy smell of the automobile. But when Father and Pop and Bonamaman and my Uncle Harold came out of the hospital door, I did not need to ask any questions. They were all shattered by sorrow. When we got home to Douglaston, Father went into a room alone, and I followed him and found him weeping over by the window. He must have thought of the days before the war, when he had first met mother in Paris, when she had been so happy and gay and had danced and had been full of ideas and plans and ambitions for herself and for him and for their children. It had not turned out as they had planned, and now it was all over, and Bonamaman was folding away the big heavy locks of red hair that had fallen from the shears when my mother was a girl, folding them away now in tissue paper in the spare room and weeping bitterly. They hired the same car again a day or so later for another journey, and this time I am definitely glad I stayed in the car. Mother, for some reason, had always wanted to be cremated. I suppose that fits in with the whole structure of her philosophy of life. A dead body is simply something to be put out of the way as quickly as possible. I remember how she was in the house at Flushing, with a rag tied tightly around her head to keep the dust out of her hair, cleaning and sweeping and dusting the rooms with the greatest energy and intensity of purpose. And it helps one to understand her impatience with useless and decaying flesh. That was something to be done away with without delay. When life was finished, let the whole thing be finished, definitely, forever. Once again, the rain fell. The sky was dark. I cannot remember if Cousin Ethel, my mother's cousin, called Mrs. McGovern, who was a nurse, remained in the car to keep me from getting too gloomy. Nevertheless, I was very sad. But I was not nearly so unhappy as I would have been if I had gone up to that mournful and appalling place and stood behind a big pane of glass to watch my mother's coffin glide slowly between the steel doors that led to the furnace. Part four. Mother's death had been one thing evident. Father now did not have anything to do with paint. He was not tied down to any one place. He could go wherever he needed to go to find subjects and get ideas, and I was old enough to go with him. And so, after I had been a few months in the local school at Douglaston and had already been moved up to the second grade in the evil-smelling gray annex on the top of the hill, Father came back to New York and announced that he and I we're going somewhere new. It was with a kind of feeling of triumph I watched the East River widen into Long Island Sound, and waited for the moment when the Fall River boat in all her pride would go sweeping past the mouth of Bayside Bay, and I would view Douglaston as I thought from superiority of the open water and pass it by, heading for a new horizon called Fall River and Cape Cod and Provincetown. We could not afford a cabin, but slept down below decks in the crowded steerage, if you could call it that, among the loud Italian families and the colored boys who spent the night shooting crafts under the dim light, while the water spoke loudly to us above our heads, proclaiming that we were well below the waterline. And in the morning we got off the boat at Fall River and walked up the street beside the textile mills and found a lunch wagon crowded with men getting something to eat on the way to work and we sat at the counter and ate ham and eggs. All day long after that, we were in a train. Just before we crossed the great black drawbridge over the Cape Cod Canal, Father got off at a station and went to a storefront across the street and bought me a bar of baker's chocolate with a blue wrapper and a picture of a lady in an old-fashioned cap and apron serving cups of chocolate. I was almost completely overwhelmed with surprise and awe at the fact of such a tremendous largesse Candy had always been strictly rationed Then came the long, long journey through the sand dunes Stopping at every station while I sat Weary and entranced With the taste of chocolate thick and stale in my mouth Turning over and over in my mind The names of places where we were going Sandwich Falmouth Truro Provincetown The name Truro especially fascinated me I could not get it out of my mind. Truro, Truro. It was a name as lonely as the edge of the sea. That summer was full of low sand dunes and coarse grasses as sharp as wires growing from the white sand. And the wind blew across the sand and I saw the breakers of the gray sea come marching in toward the land. Geography had begun to become a reality. The whole town of Provincetown smelled of dead fish, and there were countless fishing boats of all sizes tied up along the wharves, and you could run all day on the decks of the schooners, and no one would prevent you or chase you away. I began to know the smell of ropes and of pitch and of salt, white wood of decks, and the curious smell of seaweed under the docks. When I got the mumps, father read to me out of a book by John Massfield, which was full of pictures of sailing ships and the only punishment I remember getting that summer was a mild reproof for refusing to eat an orange. By the time we returned to Duggestone and Father left me with my grandparents, where John Paul had been all that time, I had learned how to draw pictures of schooners and barks and clippers and brigs and knew far more about all these distinctions than I do now. Perhaps I went back to the rickety great annex of the public school for a couple of weeks, not much longer, because father had found a new place where he wanted to go and paint pictures. And having found it, came back to get his drawing boards and me, and there we went again together. It was Bermuda. Bermuda in those days had no big hotels and no golf courses to speak of. It was not famous for anything. It was simply a curious island, two or three days out of New York in the Gulf Stream, where the British had a small naval base and where there were no automobiles and not much of anything else. We took a small boat called the Fort Victoria, the red and black funnel, and surprisingly soon after we had left New York Harbor, the flying fishes began to leap out of the foam before her bows and skid along over the surfaces of the warm waters. And although I was very eager for my first sight of the island, it came upon us suddenly before I was aware, and stood up before us in the purple waters, green and white. You could already see the small white houses made of coral, cleaner than sugar, Shining in the sun, and all around us the waters paled over the shallows and became the colour of emeralds. Where there was sand or lavender, there were rocks below the surface. We threaded our way in a zigzag between the buoys that marked the path through the labyrinthine reefs. The HMS Calcutta lay at anchor off Ireland Island dockyard, and father pointed to Somerset, where, among the dark green cedars, was the place where we would live. Yet it was evening before we finally got there. How quiet and empty it was in Somerset, in the gathering dusk. Our feet padded softly in the creamy dust of the deserted road. No wind stirred the paper leaves of the banana trees or in the oleanders. Our voices seemed loud as we spoke. Nonetheless, it was a very friendly island. Those who occasionally came by saluted us as if we were old acquaintances. The boarding house had a green veranda and many rocking chairs. The dark green paint needed renewing. The British officers, or whatever they were, who lived in the place, sat and smoked their pipes and talked, if they talked at all, about matters extremely profane. And here, Father put down our bags. They were expecting us. In the shadows, we sat down to dinner. I quickly adjusted myself to the thought that this was home. It is almost impossible to make much sense, out of the continual rearrangement of our lives and our plans from month to month in my childhood. Yet every new development came to me as a reasonable and worthy change. Sometimes I had to go to school. Sometimes I did not. Sometimes Father and I were living together. Sometimes I was with strangers and only saw him from time to time. People came into our lives and went out of our lives. We had now one set of friends, now another. There are always things changing. I accepted it all. Why should it ever have occurred to me that nobody else lived like that? To me, it seemed as natural as the variations of the weather and the seasons. And one thing I knew, for days on end, I could run where I pleased and do whatever I liked, and life was very pleasant. When Father left the boarding house, I remained there and continued to live in it because it was near the school. He was living in some other part of Somerset with some people he had met, and he spent his days at work painting landscapes. In fact, after the winter in Bermuda, he had finished enough work to have an exhibition, and this made him enough money to go back to Europe. But meanwhile, I was going to the local school for white children, which was next to a large public cricket field, and I was constantly being punished for my complete inability to grasp the principles of multiplication and division. It must have been very difficult for Father to try to make all these decisions. He wanted me to go to school, and he wanted me to be with him. When both these things ceased to be possible at the same time, he decided in favor of the school. But then, after considering at length the nature of the place where I had to live and the kind of talk I heard there all day long with my wide open and impassive understanding, he took me out of the school and brought me to live where he was. And I was very glad because I was relieved of the burdens of learning multiplication and long division. The only worry was that my former teacher passed along that road on her bicycle on her way home and if I was playing by the road I had to get out of sight for fear that she would send the truant officer around and make me go back to school. One evening I did not see her coming, and I was a little late in diving into the bushes that filled a deserted quarry, and as I peeked out between the branches I could see her looking back over her shoulder as she slowly pedalled up the white hill. Day after day the sun shone on the blue waters of the sea, and on the islands of the bay, and on the white sand at the head of the bay, And on the little white houses strung along the hillside i remember one day looking up into the sky and taking it into my head to worship one of the clouds which was shaped at the end like the head of minerva with a helmet like the head of the armed lady on the big british pennies father left me in bermuda with his friends who were literary people and artists and went to new york and had an exhibition it got good press and he sold many pictures His style had developed since Mother's death had delivered him from landscape gardening. It was becoming at the same time more abstract and more original and simpler and more definite in what it had to say. I think that the people in New York did not yet see the full force of his painting or the direction in which he was going because the Brooklyn Museum, for instance, bought the kind of pictures of Bermuda that might be thought remotely to resemble Winslow Homer rather than the things that indicated Father's true originality. And anyway, there was not much in common between him and Winslow Homer, except the bare fact of having painted watercolors of subtropical scenes. As a watercolorist, he was more like John Marin, without any of Marin's superficiality. After the exhibition was over and the pictures were sold, and Father had the money in his pocket, I returned from Bermuda and found out that Father was going to sail for France with his friends, and leave me in America. Part 5 Pop's office always seemed to me to be a fine place. The smell of typewriters and glue and office stationery had something clean and stimulating about it. The whole atmosphere was bright and active, and everybody was especially friendly because Pop was very well liked. The term live wire was singularly appropriate for him. He was always bristling with nervous energy, and most people were happy when he came shouting through their departments, snapping his fingers and whacking all the desks with a rolled-up copy of the Evening Telegram. Pop worked for Grosson and Dunlap, publishers who specialized in cheap reprints of popular novels and in children's books of an adventurous cast. They were the ones who gave the world Tom Swift and all his electrical contrivances, together with the Rover Boys and Jerry Todd and all the rest. And there were several big showrooms full of these books where I could go and curl up in a leather armchair and read all day without being disturbed until Pop came along to take me down to Child's and eat chicken a la king. This was 1923, and Grosset and Dunlap were at the peak of prosperity. As a matter of fact, it was just about the time that Pop had carried off one of the great strokes of his career. He had sold his employers on the notion of printing the books of popular movies illustrated with stills from the film to be sold in connection with the publicity given to the picture itself. This idea took on very quickly and remained popular all through the 20s and made a lot of money for the company, and it was to be the cornerstone of Pop's own economic stability, and in fact, that of the whole family for 15 years to come. And so, Black Oxen and the Ten Commandments and the Eternal City, and I forget what else went forth, into all the drugstores and bookstores in all the small towns from Boston to San Francisco, full of pictures of Pola Negri and the other stars of the time. In those days, movies were still occasionally made on Long Island, and more than once, my brother and I and all our friends in the neighborhood would hear they were taking some scene or other down at Alley Pond. Once under the trees, we witnessed what was supposed to be a gypsy wedding between Gloria Swanson and some forgotten hero. The idea was that the two of them allowed their wrists to be slashed and bound together so that their blood would mingle. That was the gypsy wedding, according to the ideas of whoever had produced this immortal masterpiece. Frankly, however, we were not very much interested in all this. As children, we had enough sense to find the whole concept extremely heavy. We were much more excited when W.C. Fields came to Alley Pond to make part of a short comedy. First, they set up the cameras in front of an old tumble-down house. I don't remember whether our hero was supposed to be drunk or scared, but the door of the house would fly open and W.C. Fields would come hurtling out and go careening down the steps in a way that made you wonder how he got to the bottom of them without breaking both his legs and all his ribs. After he had done this over and over again innumerable times, with a singular patience and philosophical tenacity, the men moved their cameras up to the top of a big pile of old lumber that was standing by, and filmed what was evidently part of the same sequence. There was a steep wooded slope full of trees and bushes, ending in a sheer drop of about six feet, At the bottom of this, they planted a couple of extremely tame cows. Then W.C. Fields came blundering through the bushes in his same hysterical stumbling flight from some unseen menace. Looking behind him, he failed to see the drop and went plunging over, landing on top of the two tame cows, which were supposed to run madly away with him on their backs. However, they just let Fields land on top of them with a heavy thud and then stood there chewing on the grass, looking bored until he fell off and climbed stoically back up the hill to start all over again. I mention all this because, as a matter of fact, the movies were really the family religion at Douglaston. That summer, 1923, Pop and Bonamaman had taken John Paul with them and had gone to California, and had visited Hollywood with the status of something more than simple tourists, since Pop knew a lot of movie people in the business way. The trip had something of the nature of a pilgrimage, however, and we never heard the end of what Jackie Coogan had personally said to them and how he had acted personally in their presence in a real, actual, personal, face-to-face meeting with Jackie Coogan. Pop and Bonamaman's other heroes were Doug and Mary. I admit that what with Robin Hood and The Thief of Baghdad, we all paid Douglas Fairbanks a somewhat corrupt form of hyperdulia, although neither I nor John Paul could ever get excited over Mary Pickford. But to Pop and Bonamaman, Doug and Mary seemed to sum up every possible human ideal. In them was all perfection of beauty and wit, majesty, grace, decorum, bravery and love, gaiety and tenderness, all virtues and every admirable moral sentiment, truth, justice, honor, piety, loyalty, zeal, trust, citizenship, valor, and above all, marital fidelity. Day after day, These two gods were extolled for the perfection of their mutual love, their glorious, simple, sincere, pious, faithful, conjugal devotion to one another. Everything that good, plain, trusting, middle-class optimism could devise was gathered into one big sentimental holocaust of praise by my innocent and tender-hearted grandparents and laid at the feet of Doug and Mary. It was a sad day in our family when Doug and Mary were divorced. My grandfather's favorite place of worship was the capitol theater in new york when the roxy theater was built he transferred his allegiance to that huge pile of solidified caramel and later on there was no shrine that stirred his devotion as the music hall there's no need to go into details of the trouble and confusion my brother and i often managed to create in the douglaston household when guests came whom we did not like We would hide under the tables or run upstairs and throw hard and soft objects down into the hall and into the living room. One thing I would say about my brother, John Paul, my most vivid memories of him and our childhood, all fill me with poignant compunction at the thought of my own pride and hard-heartedness and his natural humility and love. I suppose it is usual for elder brothers, when they are still children, to feel themselves demeaned by the company of a brother four or five years younger, whom they regard as a baby, and whom they tend to patronize and look down upon. So when Russ and I and Bill made huts in the woods out of boards and tar paper, which we collected around the foundations of many cheap houses, which the speculators were now putting up as fast as they could all over Douglaston, we severely prohibited John Paul and Russ's little brother Tommy and their friends from coming anywhere near us. And if they did try to come and get into our hut, or even to look at it, we would chase them away with stones. When I think now of that part of my childhood, the picture I get of my brother John Paul is this. Standing in a field about a hundred yards away from the clump of sumacs where we had built our hut is this little perplexed five-year-old kid in short pants and a kind of leather jacket standing quite still with his arms hanging down at his sides and gazing in our direction, afraid to come any nearer on account of the stones, as insulted as he is saddened and his eyes full of indignation and sorrow. And yet he does not go away. We shout at him to get out of there, to beat it, go home, and wing a couple of more rocks in that direction, and he does not go away. We tell him to play in some other place, and he does not move. And there he stands, not sobbing, not crying, but angry and unhappy, and offended and tremendously sad. And yet he is fascinated by what we are doing nailing shingles all over our new hut. And his tremendous desire to be with us and to do what we are doing will not permit him to go away. The law written in his nature says that he must be with his elder brother and do what he is doing. And he cannot understand why this law of love is being so wildly and unjustly violated in this case. Many times it was like that. And in a sense, this terrible situation is the pattern and prototype of all sin, the deliberate and formal will to reject disinterested love for us for the purely arbitrary reason that we simply do not want it. We will to separate ourselves from that love. We reject it entirely and absolutely and will not acknowledge it simply because it does not please us to be loved. Perhaps the inner motive is that the fact of being loved disinterestedly reminds us that we all need love from others and depend upon the charity of others to carry on our own lives. And we refuse love and reject society in so far as it seems, in our own perverse imagination, to imply some obscure kind of humiliation. There was a time when I and my magnificent friends in our great hut, having formed a gang, thought we were sufficiently powerful to antagonize the extremely tough Polish kids who had formed a real gang in Little Neck a mile away. We used to go over in their neighborhood and stand facing the general direction of the billboards behind which they had headquarters, and from a very safe distance we would shout defiance and challenge for them to come and fight. Nobody came. Perhaps there was nobody at home. But then, one cold and rainy afternoon, we observed that numbers of large and small figures, varying in age from ten to sixteen, most of them very brawny, with caps pulled down over their eyes in a businesslike way, were filtering in, By the various streets and gathering in the vacant lot outside our house and there they stood with their hands in their pockets they did not make any noise or yell or shout any challenges they just stood around looking at the house there were 20 or 25 of them there were four of us the climax of the situation came when frida our german maid told us that she was very busy with house cleaning and that we must all get out of the house immediately Without listening to our extremely nervous protests, she chased us out the back way. We made a dash through several backyards and went down the other block and ended up safely in the house where Bill lived, which was the other end of the vacant lot and from which we viewed the silent and pugnacious group from Little Nick, still standing around and with evident determination of staying there for quite a while. And then an extraordinary thing happened. The front door of our house at the other end of the lot opened, My little brother John Paul came walking down the steps with a certain amount of dignity and calm. He crossed the street and started across the lot. He walked toward the little neck gang. They all turned towards him. He kept on walking and walked right into the middle of them. One or two of them took their hands out of their pockets. John Paul just looked at them, turning his head on one side and then on the other. He walked right through the middle of them and nobody even touched him. And so he came to the house where we were. We did not chase him away. Part 6 My grandparents were like most other Americans. They were Protestants. But you could never find out precisely what kind of Protestants they were. I, their own grandson, was never able to ascertain. They put money in the little envelopes that came to them from Zion Church, but they never went near the place itself. And they also contributed to the Salvation Army and a lot of other things. So you couldn't tell what they were by the places which they helped to support. Of course, they had sent my uncle in his boyhood to the choir school of the Cathedral of St. John the Divine on the rock above Harlem, which was then a peaceful bourgeois neighborhood. And they sent John Paul there too, in due course. Indeed, there was even some talk of sending me there, yet that did not make them Episcopalians. It was not the religion that they patronized but the school and the atmosphere. In practice, Maman used to read the little black books of Mary Baker Eddy, and I suppose that was the closest she got to religion. On the whole, the general attitude around the house was the more or less inarticulate assumption that all religions were more or less praiseworthy on purely natural or social grounds. In any decent suburb of a big city, you would expect to run across some kind of church once in a while. It was part of the scenery, like the high school and the YMCA and the big whaleback roof and water tank of the movie theater. The only exceptions to this general acceptability of religions were the Jews and the Catholics. Who would want to be a Jew? But then, that was a matter of race rather than religion. The Jews were Jews, but they could not very well help it after all. But as for the Catholics, it seemed in Pop's mind that there was a certain sinister note of malice connected with the profession of anything like the Catholic faith. The Catholic Church was the only one against which I ever heard him speak with any definite bitterness or animosity. The chief reason was that he himself belonged to some kind of Masonic organization called, oddly enough, the Knights Templars. Where they picked up the name, I don't know, but the original Knights Templars were a military religious order in the Catholic Church who had an intimate connection with, with the Cistercians, of which the Trappists are a reform. Ming Knights, the Knights Templars, had a sword. Pop kept his sword, first in the closet in his den, and then for a while, it was in the coat closet by the front door, mixed up with the canes and umbrellas, and with the huge policeman's club, which Pop evidently believed would be useful if a burglar ever came around. I suppose that at the meetings of the Knights Templars, to which Pop went less and less frequently, he heard how wicked the Catholic Church was. He had probably heard that from his childhood up. It is what all Protestant children hear. It is part of their religious training. If there was another reason why he feared the Church of Rome, it was because of the accident that some of the most corrupt politicians that ever passed a bribe in New York elections were known to be Catholics. To Pop, the word Catholic and Tammany meant just about the same thing. And since this fitted in very well with what every Protestant child is told about the duplicity and hypocrisy of Catholics, Catholicism had become associated, in his mind, with everything dishonest and crooked and immoral. This was an impression that probably remained with him to the end of his days, but it ceased to be explicit when a Catholic lady came to live with us as a sort of companion to Bonamamin and a general nurse and housekeeper to the whole family. This was no temporary addition to the household. I think we were all very fond of Elsie from the beginning, and Bonamaman got to depend on her so much that she stayed around and became more and more part of the family until she finally entered it all together by burying my uncle. With her arrival, Pop no longer let loose any of his tirades against Rome unless some bitter word happened to slip out without deliberation. This was one of the few things I got from Pop that really took root in my mind and became part of my mental attitude, this hatred and suspicion of Catholics. There was nothing overt about it. It was simply the deep, almost subconscious aversion from the vague and evil thing which I called Catholicism, which lived back in the dark corners of my mentality with the other spooks, like death and so on. I did not know precisely what the word meant. It only conveyed a kind of cold and unpleasant feeling. The devil is no fool. He can get people feeling about heaven the way they ought to feel about hell. He can make them fear the means of grace the way they do not fear sin. And he does so not by the light, but by obscurity, not by realities, but by shadows, not by clarity and substance, but by dreams and the creatures of psychosis. And men are so poor in intellect that a few cold chills down their spine will be enough to keep them from ever finding out the truth about anything. As a matter of fact, by this time I was becoming more and more positively averse to the thought of any religion, although I was only nine. The reason was that once or twice, I had to go to Sunday school and found it such a bore that from then on, I went to play in the woods instead. I don't think the family was very grieved. All this time, father was abroad. He had gone first to the south of France to the Roussillon, where I was born. He was living first in the Bagnules, then in Coulier, painting landscapes along the Mediterranean shore and in the Red Mountains, all the way down to Port Vendray and the borders of Catalonia. Then after a while, he and the people he was with crossed over into Africa and went inland to Algeria, to a place on the edge of the desert, and there he painted some more. Letters came from Africa. He sent me a package containing a small berdouse, which I could wear, and a stuffed lizard of some sort. At that time, I had gathered a small natural history museum of pieces of junk that are to be found around Long Island, like arrowheads and funny-looking stones. During those years, he was painting some of the best pictures he had ever painted in his life. And then something happened, and we got a letter from one of his friends telling us that he was seriously ill. He was, in fact, dying. When Bonamaman told me the news, I was old enough to understand what it meant, and I was profoundly affected, filled with sorrow and fear. Was I never to see my father again? This could not happen. I don't know whether or not it occurred to me to pray, but I think by this time it must have at least once or twice, although I certainly had very little of anything that could be called faith. If I did pray for my father, it was probably only one of those blind, semi-instinctive movements of nature that will come to anyone, even an atheist, in the time of a crisis, and which do not prove the existence of God exactly, but which certainly show the need to worship and acknowledge him as something deeply ingrained in our dependent natures and simply inseparable from our essence. It seems that for days Father lay in delirium. Nobody appeared to know what was the matter with him. He was expected to die from moment to moment, but he did not die. Finally, he got past the crisis of this strange sickness and recovered his consciousness and began to improve and get well. And when he was on his feet again, he was able to finish some more pictures and get his things together and go to London, where he held his most successful exhibition at the Leicester Galleries in early 1925. When he returned to New York in the early summer of that year, he came in a kind of triumph. He was beginning to be a successful artist. Long ago, he had been elected to one of those more or less meaningless British societies so that he could write FRBA after his name, which he never did. And I think he was already in Who's Who, although that was the kind of thing for which he had supreme contempt. But now, what was far more useful to an artist He had gained the attention and respect of such an important and venerable critic as Roger Fry, and the admiration of people who not only knew what a good painting was, but had some money with which to buy one. As he landed in New York, he was a very different person, more different than I realized, from the man who had taken me to Bermuda two years earlier. All I noticed at the moment was the fact that he had a beard, to which I strenuously objected, being filled with the provincial snobbery so strong in children and adolescents. Are you going to shave it off now or later? I inquired, when we got to the house in Douglaston. I'm not going to shave it off at all, said my father. But that's crazy, I said. But he was not disturbed. He did shave it off a couple of years later, by which time I had got used to it. However, he had something to tell me that upset my complacency far more than the beard. For by now, having become more or less acclimatized to Douglaston after the unusual experience of remaining some two years in the same place, I was glad to be there, like my friends, and like to go swimming in the bay. I had been given a small camera with which I took pictures, which my uncle caused to be developed for me at the Pennsylvania drugstore in the city. I possessed a baseball bat with the word spalding burnt into it in large letters. I thought that maybe I would like to become a Boy Scout, and indeed, I had seen a great competition of Boy Scouts in the Flushing Armory, just next door to the Quaker meeting house where I had once got a glimpse of Dan Beard with his beard. My father said, we're going to France. France, I said in astonishment. Why would anybody want to go to France, I thought, which shows that I was a very stupid and ignorant child. But he persuaded me that he meant what he said. And when all my objections were useless, I burst into tears. Father was not at all unsympathetic about it. He kindly told me that I would be glad to be in France when I got there, and gave me many reasons why it would be a good idea. And finally, he admitted that we would not start right away. With this compromise, I was temporarily comforted, thinking perhaps his plans would be dropped after a while. But fortunately, it was not. And on August the 25th of that year, the game of prisoner's base began again, and we sailed for France. Although I did not know it, and it would not have interested me then, it was the feast of St. Louis of France.